We are resuming our series in 1 John. Unfortunately, our restart is just one verse. Not something I would normally do, but uh, I just felt I should, so we will. And we'll pick it up there next time. Before we begin, though, I want to do something sort of goofy, I guess, you know. Um, I want to test our mental fitness. You know, how prepared are we at this service to think? So let's, let's, let's see. Question. What do we get when we cross a dyslectic, an agnostic, and an insomniac? What do we get when we cross a dyslectic, agnostic, and an insomniac? Answer. Someone who stays up all night wondering if there really is a dog. <laughs> How many of you did not get that? I just did that to be goofy. 1 John 3, verse 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. There are two separate and distinct spiritual families in this universe. Those families are God's and Satan's. Satan has his spiritual children, and then God has his spiritual children. Most people have the impression that we are all God's children. That famous theologian Oprah has said that numerous times. Pope Francis has said that recently. The fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man has become almost a mantra. The fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. That statement is true only in one sense, and that is in a creational sense. Notice Malachi 2, verse 10. Have we not all one father? The question is, in what sense do we all have one father? The next phrase tells us, has not one God created us. So we are all God's children in a creational sense. God is our common creator, and he has created us in his image. Genesis 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Notice, male and female. He created them. We were created in the image of God. And in the Latin language, that's called imago Dei. Imago Dei means image of God. The founders of this nation understood that. That's the reason the preamble to the Declaration of Independence reads, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. Notice that word created. Our fathers founding fathers, our forefathers of this nation, understood that all men have been created, not evolved from pond scum. We have been created. That they are endowed by their creator, meaning God, with certain unalienable rights. Unalienable rights are personal rights that cannot be removed from us. Those unalienable rights cannot be denied us or cannot be transferred from us to another person. And those unalienable rights come from our Creator God and not from government. Notice that among these, meaning among these unalienable rights, 
not limited to these. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Our founding fathers understood we were created as image bearers. What does it mean to be created in God's image? It doesn't mean that our human anatomical structures resemble God's. It doesn't mean that our physiological self resemble God. It means, though, that like God himself, we have intelligence, will, and emotion. Intelligence, will, and emotion. And we possess a moral capacity. Animals do not have the moral capacity that humans have. There are videos on YouTube. I see them from time to time where different animals uh, in the game reserves of South Africa are seen cannibalizing their own species and eating their own babies. It's described as nature just being nature, but that's morally unacceptable to us. And that moral capacity we have that animals don't have puts us above all other creatures. And it is humans and not animals that have the potential to have a relational connection to God. That brings up something controversial, something that actually shouldn't be controversial. There is a supersized megachurch located in an affluent Chicago suburb. I won't mention the name. It's extremely popular name. Um, this is where in the 80s, apologist Lee Strobel attended after first becoming a Christian. That quote-unquote evangelical congregation has made a recent and dramatic move to the theological left. Nancy Beach is that congregation's first female teaching pastor. And she is now teaching that God is primarily a woman. God is primarily a woman and that we are to pray to Yahweh as, quote, heavenly mother. Some other mainline denominations are also teaching that same doctrine. Some United Methodists are teaching that. Uh, God was also described as a female in the best-selling religious novel called The Shack. That mother-daughter teaching is the ultimate result of modern feminism, and that people is blasphemous. Let me back up some. It's important to understand two things about God. One, God is a spirit being. God is a spirit being. God doesn't possess human characteristics and limitations. Notice John 4, verse 24. Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, he had met at Jacob's well. And there's an interesting dialogue there. Jesus said, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit. Meaning we are to worship God in and through our human spirit and truth. God is spirit is the classic biblical statement that defines God's essence. And had not God revealed himself to us through Scripture and through his son Jesus, had God not revealed himself to us through those sources, then God would be literally incomprehensible to us. We would know nothing about him. Second, all the biblical evidence indicates that God has revealed himself to us in the form of a male. 
Throughout Scripture, God has revealed himself to us in the form of a male. Now, notice, since God is a spirit being, he doesn't possess actual human characteristics. But sometimes, Scripture assigns him human characteristics in order to help us better understand him. The practice of assigning God human characteristics is called anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism is a sizable word. It is a figure of speech that attributes human characteristics to God so that we can better understand God. And that's the reason God has revealed himself to man in the form of a male. That doesn't mean, don't misunderstand, that doesn't mean God is male. God isn't male. God is genderless. But God has chosen to use a masculine form to describe himself so that we can better relate to him. There are 170, 170 biblical references to God as father. And someone cannot be a father unless he's male. If God wanted to reveal himself to us as female, then he would have called himself mother. But he didn't do that. And throughout the Old and New Testament, masculine titles, masculine names, and masculine, pardon me, masculine nouns and masculine pronouns are used over and over in referencing God. In the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in the Gospels, Jesus himself uses the word Father as a direct reference to God almost 160 times. After the four Gospels and all the other 23 New Testament books, there are some 900 verses where the Greek word theos, T-H-E-O-S, pronounced theos, is used. Theos was a masculine noun in the ancient Greek language, and it's used as a direct reference to God. Verse 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Before we continue, let me mention something that some of us might have encountered if we've ever had conversations with our Mormon friends. Mormonism teaches a doctrine called pre-existence. Pre-existence or a pre-mortal existence. Mormonism teaches that we each had a pre-existence on an unnamed planet where the Mormon god Elohim resided and ruled. Meaning we existed prior to being here. Elohim is a plural word in the Hebrew language that is used to, to describe this singular being we call God. That's interesting because God is both singular and plural. He is a singular being. He is a singular deity. But he exists in a plural form. He exists in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. Elohim is one of the most common names for God in the Old Testament. It is used 2,500 times in the Hebrew Bible. Mormonism has confiscated, actually stolen, that name Elohim to describe the Mormon God, although the Mormon God is totally unrelated to the biblical God of the Old and New Testaments. Don't misunderstand. Mormonism uses some of the same words 
we as evangelicals use. The difference is Mormons assign different meanings to those words. So if we're conversing with someone that is Mormon, uh, we need to be careful. They'll use the same words we do, but those words have a different meaning to them than to us. According to Mormonism, the Mormon god Elohim had sexual relations with his countless wives. Wives, plural, because Elohim was a polygamist. And through endless sexual relations, Elohim created billions of spirit children who were then born to parents, human parents on earth, so we could have our bodies. I might add, Jesus was the product he was created as a spirit child of Elohim and one of his celestial wives. Lucifer, or Satan, was also created as a product of Elohim and one of his celestial wives, meaning that Jesus and Lucifer were created as spiritual beings. This means, according to Mormonism, we are each God's children in the literal sense of being his biological offspring. According to Mormonism, we are actual literal descendants from God. People, that is not a biblical teaching. Our existence started at conception inside our mother and not before. We did not have a pre-existence as a spirit child on another planet. That didn't happen. Unsaved people are never mentioned once in Scripture as being God's children. Not once. We are all born in sin. We've inherited original sin from the first man. And that sin has separated us from God. And that sin aligns us with Satan, in some cases more so than others. As an example, the Pharisees, we mention them often, were a strict religious sect that at the time of Jesus consisted of some 6,000 Jewish males. Females were not permitted to be a Pharisee. Those Pharisees pretended to practice all 613 commandments the rabbis had extrapolated from the Torah. The Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, the rabbis evaluated those books and created 613 rules, 613 do's and don'ts. And the Pharisees pretended to keep all of that and then considered those that didn't practice those same commandments to be inferior to themselves. The Pharisees were self-righteous religious snobs. Notice John 8, verse 44. Jesus said to those Pharisees, You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. A child sometimes manifests the characteristics of his father. And that was true in this case. Verse 44 continues. He, meaning the devil, was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Those men that were considered the religious elite of ancient Israel were sons of Satan himself, according to Jesus. And as a result, those men were hostile to Jesus' claim to be Messiah and wanted him arrested and executed. So as it was then, so is it now. Not all people are children of God. There is a requirement we must meet in order to be considered one of God's children. And that requirement is found in John 1. 
John 1, starting at verse 11. Notice, he, this is Jesus, came to his own, meaning Jesus came to his own people, the Jewish people. Jesus was a Jewish man. Jesus came to his own people, and his own, meaning his own Jewish people, did not receive him. Jesus presented himself to his people as the promised Messiah. Messiah meaning the promised anointed ruler from God. But the people rejected him. Most of the people felt he was a fraud. But there were some exceptions. Verse 12, but as many as received him, Jesus, to them, to those that received Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God. Notice, to those who believe in his name. Notice the truism on the note sheet. Believing is receiving. So sometimes receiving, so someone receives Jesus the moment he believes on Jesus. Someone receives Jesus the moment he believes on Jesus, and that gives him the right to be considered one of God's spiritual children. That's how we become a child of his. No one is God's spiritual child until he believes and receives Jesus. Galatians 3, verse 26. For you are all sons. There's no gender distinction there. All sons, meaning all children of God. How are we children of God? Through faith in Christ Jesus. That means salvific faith in Jesus results in that person being made one of God's children. At someone's salvation, according to Ephesians 1 and verse 5, God adopts, adopts that person into his familial unit. God then becomes that person's spiritual father, and that person becomes his spiritual child. But those that refuse to believe and receive Jesus are never considered God's children. At a press conference, Kentucky Governor Andy Beshear announced the names of the victims from this senseless bank shooting in Louisville that happened this past Monday. In the immediate hours after what was the 146th mass shooting in just more than three months into 2023, and that is an unbelievable number. Remember, a mass shooting uh, is considered four or more fatalities. 146 mass shootings in just the first three months of 2023. In the hours after that shooting happened, it was reported there were four innocent fatalities. A fifth innocent victim died from his injuries in the hospital um, sometime that night. The governor, just after this happened, called a press conference, and it was apparent he was emotionally devastated. He, he was grieving as he should have been. I read that he knew three of those victims himself, and one of the fatalities was a close, close friend of his. So he was, he was just um, mourning that loss. He started his announcement using these words, and this is verbatim. He said, we lost four children of God today. I've never heard those same words at a press conference after a mass shooting. I've never heard them. The governor said, we lost four children of God today. Were those four victims children of God? In a creational sense, absolutely. 
All four victims were created imago Dei, created in the image of God. But were those four victims children of God in a spiritual, familiar sense, as John describes? It could be, and we hope so. We sincerely hope so. But we cannot know that unless we had intimate knowledge of the spiritual status of each victim. And we don't have that knowledge And we might not have that knowledge until heaven, so we don't know. But non-Christians are never considered spiritual children of God. Only children of God in a creational sense. Verse 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Let me read that verse from the New Living Translation. See how very much our Father loves us, for He calls us His children, and that is what we are. And then this rendering from the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Look at how great a love the Father has given us, that we should be called God's children, and we are. Let's think through this. The God of this universe the self-existent one, the creator of all things, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that God loves us so much that he has adopted us into his gigantic spiritual family so that he is our spiritual father and we are his spiritual child. Let me add that God is the perfect father. A child's perspective on God, especially smaller children, A child's perspective on God as a father sometimes corresponds to that child's perspective on his own father. If his own father is demanding, impatient, and easily angered, then that child questions if God as a father is also demanding, impatient, and easily angered. If his own father is a phantom father, meaning he's mostly absent and ignores him, then that child in his mind questions if God is also absent and unavailable to him. The lesson to men in this room that are fathers and grandfathers is that we should determine to be the father to our children and the grandfather to our grandchildren that gives them, communicates to them the accurate perspective on God the Father in heaven. Don't them, let them ever have a distorted perspective of who he is because of our actions and or inactions. Verse 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Then the second half of this verse, therefore, the world, meaning the world system, and we've been addressing the system throughout this epistle, the world does not know us because it does not know him, meaning God. The system doesn't know us because it doesn't know him. John 15, this is familiar, verse 18, Jesus said to his disciples, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Verse 20, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. So Jesus said this to his disciples, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. I have not been to Rome, 
in part because I just don't get out much. But something I would want to see there, if I were there, would be the catacombs. The catacombs are ancient burial sites underground in and around Rome, sometimes multiple underground levels of catacombs, connected through a massive maze of tunnels. Those tunnels also sometimes contained inscriptions and wall art. Here's some examples of those catacombs. Those are human skulls on the wall. And then these shelves contained the remains of corpses. Some of the artwork uh, and imaging on the walls and a statue there also in the catacombs. There's an estimated 600 miles of catacombs that house some 6.5 million corpses. Some Jewish bodies were buried in those catacombs. Also some pagans were buried there, but most were bodies from Christians. And an undetermined percentage of those bodies were martyred Christians. Meaning ancient people that claimed to be children of the true God were executed because of that claim. The Roman world didn't recognize God, so the Roman world didn't recognize his children. And the catacombs were the result. Modern persecution has changed in form some since the first centuries, especially on this continent, since in a technical sense, this is supposed to be a free and open democratic society. But there are more and more instances of violent religious persecution, even here. The most recent example was the shooting at the Covenant School in Nashville. Most of us remember that. It just happened. A private elementary school, Presbyterian-affiliated elementary school of about 200 students, three innocent staff members and three innocent children, all of them age nine, one of them the pastor's daughter, those people were murdered in cold blood. There would have been even more casualties except for the amazing performance of Nashville PD. The perpetrator, whose name I refuse to mention, entered the building at 10.11 a.m. through shooting through some side glass doors. At 10.25 a.m., just 14 minutes after that person entered the building, that person was dead because of the police. Incredible efficiency. The consensus was that was a hate crime. That was an example of religious persecution. Also in the U.S. alone, the number of criminal acts committed against churches has exploded during the first three months of 2023. There were 69 documented hostile acts committed against churches. Ranging from, ranging from vandalism to arson to gun-related incidents to bomb threats and assaults. On a recent edition, just to show you where we are, a recent edition of the television program called The View. Please understand, I cite things that happen on The View. I don't watch The View. I don't do that. I have a smart TV. My TV is so smart, once the view came on, it changed the channel. That's how smart it was. Joy Behar, 
committed atheist, I might add, and a supposed comedian, I don't think she's funny at all, uh, was interviewing actress Jane Fonda. Now, older generations recognize Jane Fonda. Emerging generations probably don't know. She earned the nickname Hanoi Jane during the 70s. She was a huge Vietnam War protester. She was interviewed on 10 radio stations in Vietnam where she basically shamed our troops there. On a personal basis, I wasn't a fan of that war. I had problems associated with that particular war. But those men and women, some of whom are in our own congregation, those men and women that served there in those rice paddies and jungles representing our nation deserve our honor and our respect. But because of people like Jane Fonda, that is not what our troops received after coming home. And that was shameful. So Joe Behar asked Jane Fonda, what she suggested pro-abortion people do in addition to marching and protesting. I mean, the emphasis is, you know, you know, pro-choice, pro-abortion. What can we do besides marching and protesting? Jane Fonda responded, murder. I thought about murder. As in murdering us, the opposition, murdering us that are pro-life. She now insists, because there was enormous backlash, she now insists that comment was made in jest and was just hyperbole. No, no, no. Jesus said in Luke 6, verse 45, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. She was verbalizing the murderous, subconscious, murderous intent of her heart. That's where we are. But on a normal basis... Persecution in this nation is more nonviolent than violent. No one now is being crucified, but instead people are being canceled on social media. We are now known as the cancel culture. Common sense people, and Christians in particular, now face suspicious terminations from their employment for a controversial Facebook post or a tweet that protests biological males competing in women's sports. We are accused of hate speech if we dare misgender someone or dead name someone. Dead naming is calling a transgender person the name that person used before transitioning. As an example, calling Caitlyn Jenner Bruce Jenner is dead naming. Um, Bruce, according to him, has fully transitioned into a female, including all of the essential gender reassignment surgeries. I don't want to be more specific than that. Um, He has a will. In his will, notice I'm dead naming, in his will, Bruce has some instructions. Those instructions read, quote, when I'm buried, I want to be dressed, meaning in the casket, I want to be dressed as her because that's the way I'm going to heaven. Bruce might want to rethink that going to heaven part. Um, I think he has some spiritual work to do. Um, Greta Thunberg is this Swedish environmentalist activist and climate alarmist. And don't misunderstand, Christians are responsible to care for the earth and care for the earth as resources. We are. 
Uh, we are to be reasonable convers- conver- conservationists and environmentalists. But all this climate change craziness is excessive and extreme. Do you know the percentage? We always talk about carbon emissions and pollution. Do you know the percentage of CO2 in the atmosphere? 0.04. You're cheating because you already heard this. Anyway, 0.04%. And if it were to drop to 0.02%, plants would die. We need some degree of CO2 in the atmosphere. But all of this is because of these sorts of statistics. Now, Greta and I still remember the speech she made. She looked at us as adults and all of these people that were national, you know, in governance and said, how dare you? How dare you? I'm looking at Greta going, how dare you? <laughs> she doesn't have a biblical worldview. She, she is an irreligious person. Science is the God she worships or pseudoscience. She doesn't have a degree in climatology or meteorology or another atmospheric science. She's not an expert in any other discipline other than scaremongering and convincing the masses to accept this climate hysteria she preaches. But if in public one of us would dare call Greta a clueless fanatic or a useful idiot, then that person would then be shouted down, cursed, and probably accosted. Because that's how angry the system is at us. The world doesn't recognize God. The world doesn't know God. And so the world doesn't recognize and know those of us that are his children. And it hates all that is foreign to it. Voltaire was a famous French writer and philosopher from the Enlightenment period. I I do think there's some confusion about him. I've often read he was an atheist. But I've read and investigated more. I don't believe that. I, I think he was a deist probably. Not a Christian, though. Uh, I'm not a fan, per se, of Voltaire, but there's a statement attributed to him I believe we should consider. We aren't certain if he said this verbatim, but he said something to this effect. Quote, Those who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. One more time. Those who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. We've seen that as part of the historical record. On the cover of Time magazine, July 10, 1933, was a picture of German's Minister of Propaganda. Imagine, that was his title, Minister of Propaganda. His name was Joseph Goebbels. Under that picture was a caption that read, Say it in your dreams, the Jews are to blame. Say it in your dreams, the Jews are to blame. And the Nazi regime, the Third Reich, blamed the Jewish people for all of the nation's problems, political problems, social problems, economic problems, even ethnic problems. Those accusations against the Jewish people were absurdities. But the government convinced the people to believe those absurdities. And just as Voltaire said, then came the atrocities and the senseless murder of six million plus Jewish people. That's where we are in a societal sense right now. Higher education, the media, entertainment, and government want us to believe absurdities. Want us to believe absurdities about gender, about sexual orientation. Wants us to believe absurdities about diversity, equity, and inclusion. 
Absurdities about socialism and Marxism and absurdities about the bigoted, hateful, racist, religious right. And the more people accept those absurdities, the more dangerous is our remaining time on this earth. The difference is this time, Christians, not Jews, will be the targets of persecution. We're there. How do we respond to persecution on a personal, practical basis? How do we respond to personal offense and persecution? There are three steps. One, rejoice in the persecution. Rejoice in the persecution. Don't bemoan and begrudge that we're being persecuted. Don't lament, why me? Why me? The Gospels record seven statements Jesus made as he hung on the cross. And why me wasn't one of them. In some cases, our response should be to bring a lawsuit against the person and or persons and or government responsible for that persecution, such as those churches that sued over government lockdowns during the COVID crisis. I might add one church in our region, Calvary Chapel from Dayton, was one of the first to sue. But one prime example that received much attention across this nation was Grace Church from Los Angeles. Five months after the government started locking down churches, Dr. MacArthur, he pastors there and has for more than a half century, made an announcement in preparation to reopen to public worship in defiance of the government's restriction. The announcement read, in response to the recent state order requiring churches in California to limit or suspend all meetings indefinitely, we, the pastors and elders of Grace Community Church, respectfully inform our civic leaders that they have exceeded their legitimate jurisdiction. And faithfulness to Christ prohibits us from observing the restrictions that they want to impose on our corporate worship services. And then he added, the biblical order is clear. Christ is Lord over Caesar, not vice versa. Christ, not Caesar, is the head of the church. That was a bold and courageous statement and a courageous move on the part of the congregation to open under the uh, auspices of Mr. Gavin Newsom's jurisdiction. In response to that announcement, the persecution started. Dr. MacArthur himself was repeatedly threatened with fines and jail time. There was a point where he feared he would be arrested, which didn't bother him at all. He said, I'm 82. Um, I've had a fantastic ministry, but I've never had a jail ministry, so it'd be good. It's okay. <laughs> and at one point, Los Angeles County evicted the church from a large parcel of land at at least for decades to use as a parking lot. So the church, because of these things, was forced to sue the state and sue the county. The nonprofit law firm, Thomas More Society, represented the church and won. Won a total of 800000 from the state and the county for its violations against the church's religious liberty. That 800000 just to let us know, did not go to the church, 
that entire amount went to the law firm in order to help them defend other churches pro bono. But even throughout that legal process, and I've spoken to those that were there throughout that time, even throughout that long legal process, not knowing what would happen, there was rejoicing. Rejoicing in the services, smiles on people's faces. No one was lamenting the fact this was happening. There was rejoicing on the part of the pastoral staff and the congregation. Now notice I said rejoice in the persecution, not rejoice for the persecution. There's a difference. Luke 6 Verses 22 and 23. This is Luke's variation of the eighth beatitude from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Remember the beatitudes? This is the final one. Verse 22. Blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you and revile you. Revile means to criticize and condemn in an abusive and insulting manner. That describes often the secular unsaved unregenerate population and their attitude toward us. That describes often the progressive left's attitude toward us. And then the statement is made, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Jesus is the Son of Man, so this is for His sake. All of this is happening. That last statement, cast out your name as evil, is the reason Christians are called xenophobic, Islamophobic, homophobic, transphobic, misogynist, fascist, racist, and a bunch of deplorables. These are names we're called. If we hold to traditional biblical values, these are names we're called if we have a biblical worldview. These are names we're called because name-calling is what the left resorts to if it has insufficient intellectual arguments and rebuttals in the marketplace of ideas and debate. And understand, it isn't going to get better. So our attitude needs to be one of rejoicing. Verse 23, rejoice in that day. Meaning, if persecution comes, rejoice and leap for joy. Meaning, if persecution comes, we are to literally jump for joy. I don't jump so often at my age, but I'm feeling it. Jump for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven. For in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. Meaning, this isn't something new. Generations of ancient Jewish people also persecuted the prophets God had sent them. One of my favorite passages, Acts 5, starting at verse 40. The church had just started and uh, had exploded, and notice what's happening. And when they, they meaning Israel's highest ruling court, called the Sanhedrin, similar to our Supreme Court, and when they, the Sanhedrin, called for the apostles and beaten them, don't just read over that, beaten them. Do you understand what that means? According to the Mishnah, these men were scourged 39 times each, probably using a whip called the cat of nine tails. It consisted of a small wooden handle attached to nine leather lashes with small pieces of bone and metal attached to each lash. It was a brutal, brutal beating. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them in that manner, they commanded, 
meaning these Jewish authorities commanded, ordered, insisted that they, these apostles, should not speak in the name of Jesus and then let them go. Verse 41, so they, those apostles that had just been beaten, departed from the presence of the council rejoicing. Were those men protesting what had happened to them? No. Were those men moaning and groaning? No. Were those men complaining about this? No. Those men were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Those earliest Christians considered it a privilege to be persecuted for a righteous cause and so rejoiced. Now don't misunderstand this. Just because persecution is a cause to rejoice doesn't mean we should be obnoxious toward people and inconsiderate so that some form of persecution against us is inevitable. I remember someone, this is some time ago, uh, he was a sincere man. He wanted people to come to faith. He did, he cared, but he had a sort of a toxic approach to people sometimes. Um, If he was attempting to share Jesus, He was sometimes disrespectful, he was argumentative and sometimes rude in his approach to personal evangelism and and then he couldn't understand why people would get upset at him. His attitude was similar to, hi, would you like to hear how you can go to heaven? No, you don't? Okay, go to hell then. That was his attitude. I mean, it just lacked diplomacy, it was terrible. Remember, if secular, irreligious, unregenerate people get upset at us, then be certain it is because of our spiritual position and not because of our personal disposition. We must befriend people to ourselves before we can befriend them to Jesus. Second, remain faithful throughout that persecution. Remain faithful to God in what God has instructed to us and expects of us throughout that persecution. Verse 42, notice, and remember these men had just been beaten. Remember these men had been instructed not to even mention Jesus. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease. Meaning these courageous men didn't stop, didn't hesitate, did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ Christ meaning Jesus is the Messiah. The religious government said don't. God said do. And so those apostles did. The apostles we just read about continued to be faithful to the thing that caused them persecution. There is a temptation for us now to just eliminate the thing that caused the persecution. Eliminate the thing that got people upset at us. Eliminate the thing that resulted in them calling us names. So we just do what is necessary to maintain our status and credibility with the culture. We don't want to rock the boat. But that was unacceptable to these men. Preaching Jesus got them into trouble. But those men ignored those instructions and continued preaching Jesus. The result of that continuance was that after Judas Iscariot committed suicide, The remaining 11 apostles were all martyred except for John, John who authored this epistle. John wasn't martyred, but there was an attempt on the part of the government. He was 
dipped into a huge vat of boiling oil, starred for the remainder of his time on this earth, but he survived, and that was miraculous. Number three, release that persecution to God. Release that persecution to God. First Peter 5, 7, casting all your care upon him. Who? God. Why? For he cares for you. That word casting means to throw something over or throw something onto something. We do that at each baptism service. If you've ever witnessed a baptism service here, after someone is baptized and then comes up the steps, someone is standing there, often Chris, is standing there to throw a big towel over them. I mean, they're wet, they're probably cold, and so Chris stands there and throws a big towel over them. That throwing a towel over someone after being baptized is the same as casting. God wants us to cast, to throw all our cares, worries, doubts, rejections, fears, confusion, and persecution, to cast all of that onto God the Father because He cares about us. We don't have to face persecution alone. I read about a hitchhiker that carried this huge, heavy duffel bag over his shoulder and down his back. Massive bag. A sympathetic driver offered him a ride. And uh, so he got in and sat down in the front seat. But he was all hunched over because he still carried that oversized, overstuffed duffel bag across his back. He's in the front seat like this. And the driver noticed that and said, listen, listen, you can just toss that bag into the back seat. You don't have to do that. And this hitchhiker said to this driver, I, I appreciate that offer, but you were kind enough to give me a ride. I couldn't ask you to carry my bag too. Some Christians resemble that hitchhiker. God is giving us a free ride to heaven. But we insist on lugging around a huge overstuffed duffel bag full of problems. God wants us to give him that bag of problems that bag of hurts and troubles and headaches and persecution and trust him for the solution to that mess and if there is no immediate solution then trust him that he will help us survive that situation so those three things rejoice if there's persecution continue doing what God expects from us throughout that persecution and then third release that persecution to God. Cast it on Him. And if we do all of that, then sometimes that situation, that persecution is reversed. We started our first congregation in 1975. We started seeing conversions soon after we started. People coming to faith. But we met in a small storefront building. It was interesting. The building had been occupied by a group called the Mystic Wisdom Occult Center. And so this occultist had been meeting there and selling paraphernalia, but couldn't pay their rent. Business wasn't good, that's great. And so moved out. We moved in, prayed all the demons out, um, and, and, and started there in that small, small storefront. It's still there. It's a dance studio now. We had nowhere to baptize, though, all these beginning Christians. So one afternoon, I went to see the pastor of another church. Uh, he'd been recommended to me, and I went to see him probably 20 minutes from us. 
I sat in his office, never met him before, and I asked him if we could possibly use his baptism facilities on a Sunday afternoon. There wouldn't be services there, and, and the building would be available, and, and ask if we could use the baptism facilities and offer to pay the church whatever he considered would be appropriate. I wasn't prepared for his reaction. He ripped me to shreds. He said, under no circumstances could we use their facilities. And then he told me I had no business starting a church within a 30-minute radius of his congregation without first getting his permission. He perceived me as a threat, me. Not sure the reason for that since no one from his congregation had ever visited one of our services. Probably no one had ever heard of us. But he perceived me as a threat, and he was upset. I was just 24, and he was probably 45 to 50. So I wasn't disrespectful toward this man, but I also wasn't going to remain silent. So I reminded him that Methodist evangelist John Wesley said that the world was his parish, and that I had received God's permission to start a congregation, and I was completely unaware that I also needed his permission. He didn't appreciate that, so he told me to leave, and I did. Uh, we soon found another church that was excited to permit us to use their baptism facilities and refused to charge us. Sometime after that, the director of a Christian school in the area invited me to speak at their graduation ceremonies. Um, not sure why me, but I was asked. And I agreed to do that. But about a month before graduation, I received a call from the director of that school. As soon as I answered, I could tell she was upset. She said, Pastor, I have a problem. Um, she explained that this first pastor I had met that had refused us the use of his baptismal facilities, that man that was upset at me actually taught music classes at this Christian school. I did not know that. He had heard that I was scheduled to speak at graduation ceremonies, and he announced to this director that if I spoke, if she permitted me to speak, then he would boycott the graduation. She said, if he refuses to come, then we have no music from the students at graduation. And music from the students is a big part of the program. But if he doesn't attend, we won't have music. I don't know what to do. We wanted you to speak, and still do, but if, if we do, then there's going to be serious consequences. I just don't know what to do. And I said, and I tried to be sympathetic. I said, it's okay. I have a solution. I'm the reason you're in this unfortunate situation. I don't know what I did, but I'm the problem here. So I will respectfully decline the invitation to speak. I would never want to be a distraction to you and to the school, and there's enough time to find someone else probably more qualified to speak than me. And she seemed so relieved, and she thanked me profusely for getting her out of a potential mess. I was certain I did the right thing. I didn't hesitate, didn't second-guess or question that decision, so I just put that incident behind me and just moved on, forgot about it. Some months after that, another pastor mentioned that disgruntled pastor's name. 
the man that said he wouldn't attend graduation if I spoke, the man that said we couldn't use his facilities, he mentioned that pastor's name and said, have you heard what happened? I hadn't even thought about him. So I was clueless. He proceeded to tell me that this man had been forced to resign his congregation in disgrace. That caught my attention. That's not a good thing. He continued, it gets worse. He left his marriage, he left his children, and is now cohabitating with another man in a homosexual arrangement. It turned out he was a fraud. He was a spiritual wolf in sheep's clothing. Now there was no cause to rejoice in that announcement. None. That was so sad. But it did act as a sense of vindication for me toward those persons he had tried to discredit me to. And that's what sometimes happens if we have a biblical response to persecution. We should prepare ourselves, people, because it's coming. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you for what we've learned from those earliest Christians um, who suffered so much. Millions, it is estimated, died during the first three centuries of the church. They died for what most of us are not even willing to live for, and that's sad. I think it's unfortunate that we don't represent you better than we do in society, which is why we're probably not persecuted often. No one ever speaks ill of us or badmouths us or calls us names because of our faith in Christ. God, help us to determine to be what you called us to be, do what you called us to do. And if persecution comes, to rejoice and continue to do your will and to give that persecution and all the ensuing problems associated with it to you, trusting you to take care of us. So thank you for this time. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your goodness and most of all, your patience with each of us. And I hope this message will have been beneficial to all of us. And I pray and I thank you in the name of your mighty and special son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.